G'day and welcome to Dog Talk. I'm Dan Camilleri. And I'm Laura McKillop. We'd like to start by thanking Enduro for their ongoing support in bringing you our live weekly Q&A. Tonight, we're fortunate enough to be speaking with Simon, oh, sorry, Simon Leading from Marion Vale Working Dogs. Simon will be picking who he thinks has asked the best question tonight, of the night, and they will win a bag of Enduro Plus, high-energy food for working dogs with real kangaroo meat. Hey, Simon, how are you going? Hi, Laura, how are you going? Hi, Daniel. G'day, mate. How's it going, mate? How's your day? Yeah, going well. It's nice over here. We've got a little bit of rain and, uh, yeah, a bit of a change, change in the season, which is always good. Beautiful. Awesome, mate. How um, how was your day, mate? Like, uh, kick us off with a busy day, cruisy day. Well, I started with a couple of dog lessons this morning, had a couple of people up from the country uh, who uh, were visiting with their dogs. And uh, so that's always a good start. We dodged the showers, trained a couple of dogs. Um, yeah, pretty much filled the day doing lots of bits and pieces. Oh, training dogs all day. What's the rich doing? How good is that? <laughs> Mate, well, we want to jump into it then. Um, Mate, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from and what you do? Yeah, well, obviously I'm Simon Leaning and um, my uh, business name is Marion Vale Working Dogs. Um, I, I started with dogs um, through necessity. Uh, I had some sheep running through the properties and uh, that I have here and um, could never get them in. And I uh, used to get the neighbours and friends and, and family uh, out with gum leaves and bags and we'd go out rounding up the, uh, our sheep from out of the bush. <laughs> and I sort of thought probably a better way of doing that would be to get a sheepdog. And um, so I went to the trusty Sunday Times, which probably is the equivalent to Gumtree nowadays. <laughs> yeah. I set myself up a, a, a Kelpie uh, and it was a red one. So it was always going to be a good one and promptly ruined it. And uh, and that was where my journey of working sheepdog started, just simply because I didn't know what I was doing. The dog was always in the wrong place as far as I was concerned. I was pretty good at swearing and pretty good aim with the rocks. And uh, that little dog looked at me like I was a complete idiot. And I really probably was. And how about before dogs? Um, where, where were you sort of in life at that stage? So um, I, I I was a policeman for 30 years. I worked uh, with uh, juveniles and kids uh, in the police force. And, um, of course, I chased crooks and did all the things that police officers do. Um, and I was brought up, wasn't really brought up in the country. I was brought up in the, the rough suburbs of Perth and uh, went to a pretty rough high school. And policing was an option or criminal was an option. And I chose policing, fortunately. Um, got a career in police force. But I always wanted to live in the country and I moved up into the country about uh, just in the hills of Perth about 30 years ago and we bought a little property up here and uh, hence my my uh, farming, small farming career started. So where do you think your passion for um, for livestock and working dogs come Or well, we know we're working dogs, but livestock? Um, so I had, had long grass, I needed sheep and yeah. uh, we, we, we bought some sheep, not knowing much about sheep and... Um, they were pretty good at getting into the bush and ducking through fences and giving them giving me grief, uh, visiting the neighbour's place, doing all those things. But I but I really like working with sheep and I really like working. I, we had a couple of cows and we had a couple of goats, as you do when you start out on the, on properties. And um, I liked all of those things. And one of the things I, I did do early in my piece was was seek out a good advice and uh, help with some of those things. So I learned as much as I could about. Uh, handling livestock appropriately, looking after them, those sorts of things. 
And uh, yeah, I mean, that was really where the farming passion started, uh, just because I had a real love for animals, love for dogs, love for, for livestock. And when you were starting out, who inspired you with the dogs? So my first dog was, was a failure. Um, I went to the Raw show one day and I picked up, I was just watching the sheepdogs working and there was a man, well, I didn't know at the time, but there was a dog out there doing amazing things and I couldn't see who who was working the dog and I waited for the crowd to dissipate. There was a man there called Ben Vosculin. Um, he was working the dog with a whistle and it was really amazing to watch that. And um, I was fortunate enough to go over and have a chat with him, talk to him a little bit about how we managed to do that. And he said, well, it takes a long time and it takes a, a lot of effort. And um, he, he, was, he was good enough to give me a pup out of that dog. And that got me started in really good quality working sheepdogs. Yeah, right. How, how long ago was that? So that was back in uh, about 99 when I got my first really good sheepdog. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Question from Daniel. Daniel M, not this Daniel. <laughs> um, Travelling around the world, what do you see as the major difference between countries when it comes to dogs and handlers? So I guess um, I, was, I was lucky enough, later in my career, I was lucky enough to uh, be invited over to the United States. And, um, and from there, I, I visited America twice a year for, for a long period of time, just giving seminars and clinics. People seemed to enjoy what I was telling them. Um, the difference, of course, is the type of livestock they're working. So they're, in America, they're, they're working some really tough range um, uh, sheep and cattle and um, some sheep that are like little deer that are, need a dog. And a Kelpie was very good at that, um, managing really light, flighty sheep livestock. But when I started going to Europe, it was very different again because there were small flocks um, and I was going to Norway, uh, Switzerland, uh, Germany, France. And though it was, once again, very different type of uh, terrain and, and uh, the livestock was very different. And in fact, in Norway, the, the sheep are like little families rather than flocks. So they had GPS collars on them when they tracked them down in the mountains. And again, the Kelpies were really good uh, because they could go out and find sheep. They could gather them and they could work them. And um, so that was my introduction to overseas traveling was, was the fact that I was working with Kelpies over here and introducing kelpies particularly over in the overseas market which was which was really what they were interested in doing the difference is the control um the big distances they handle over there in their trialing the control is they're very controlling uh they're able to get their dogs to stop on a dime um, but sometimes they lacked some of the natural ability that perhaps our dogs needed with the merino sheep and the types of livestock we work over here so Livestock is livestock wherever you go, um, but of course, uh, terrain and and individual circumstances are always different. Uh, I hope that answers really, the question a little bit. No, 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 that's all right, mate. All over it, and um, talking there about starting back in nineteen ninety nine and your different places you've been to. Um, have you noticed the change in the way people handle livestock and dogs um, from then compared to now? And and is it for the better? So in 99, I, I got my first sheepdog and I um, managed to get a hold of a guy called Doug Connup, who was a very good sheepdog trialer. And he took my dog and demonstrated how good it was, but he didn't teach me anything. He was It was difficult for him to teach. And um, 
we, he could work my dog brilliantly, but he, he couldn't tell me how he was doing it. And uh, that was where we found there were some holes that needed to be filled. Uh, so I just went out so it's searching for people to help me as much as I possibly could. And, and I guess I started my teaching really early in my career because people were asking me how I was doing it. And, um, and I guess it was, uh, that was probably the biggest change. It wasn't the people that are teaching, teaching people nowadays. And you can go to a clinic, certainly over in the Eastern States with many, many different top quality handlers. And, um, and that's, where the advancements have occurred because people are passing on that knowledge. And I think that's really been a step forward. Um, we were lucky enough to get Neil McDonald over here and Greg Prince over here and um, Jim Lindsay doing some livestock training. Those sort of people visited Western Australia. And, uh, and once again, as a result, we, we saw a great improvement in our livestock training and also our sheepdog training as well. Yeah, nice. Um, seeing, obviously, you have a lot of people come through and do lessons with you and being overseas and everything. Um, do you see is when seeing other people handle stock, is there a particular thing that they might do that makes you turn away or that could be approached differently that you see occurring quite a bit? I, I guess the biggest thing I see when people are learning about dogs is they want to control things and control their dogs. And we got a lot of control freaks that handle dogs, I guess. And um, maybe uh, natural dogs is what I encourage. I like dogs to do things naturally. I like dogs to be allowed to work. And um, and that's what I see the biggest mistake is people interfere when dogs don't need to be interfered with. Um, and that's what we try to show when we're teaching people how to, how to handle their dogs is what's correct and what's not correct and, and allow them to develop, the dogs to develop rather than to train the dogs and then work with them rather than against what they're, what they're offering. Yeah. And that's certainly that's certainly different over in Europe where they'll take the, the heading ability out of a dog pretty early because they want to drive um, yeah. and they'll take the balance out of a dog pretty early because they want they, they want to control where that balance point is. And um, as a result, sometimes when they get sheep that are really difficult, they have trouble handling them because the dog's waiting for instructions instead of working on his instinct. And do you think a lot of that is based around not understanding sometimes how a dog is bred like and and the natural work traits of a dog and like some people get a dog that balances and like oh it's doing it wrong I'm like well wait a minute like what are you actually trying to achieve yeah well i certainly did my dog was balancing to me and he was in the wrong wrong place as far as i was concerned when i first started so i can see why people make those mistakes and i guess that's where the educators such as myself traveling around pointing out that that's correct and uh you know, it was a hard lesson to learn because, um, and, and I see farmers all the time over here saying they want the dog on the same side of the sheep as them, and and that's they say so they should, but at some point they they've got to allow the dog to go to the head, balance, do the things that they should do first before they start bringing them off into some unnatural positions for the dog, and that's really uh, probably one of the biggest issues I see when people are training dogs is they they're starting them they're training them probably a little bit. They're training them too early instead of developing them, I guess. But uh, that's not everybody. And they're really good handlers uh, doing the great things around the place and, and hence they're getting good results. Uh, absolutely, mate. And obviously we get a few new viewers on Dog Talk from week to week. We pick up a, a bit more traction. And, mate, can you give us your opinion and just a quick rundown of your views on um, the importance of uh, pressure relief work and low-stress low dog handling? 
as I said, I was probably lucky to go to a Jim Lindsay school early in my career and, and certainly went to a number of Neil McDonald schools. So I learned a little bit about that. Um, and um, and it's a principle I use on training dogs too, pressure and relief. We apply pressure when, when the dog is wrong and, and relief when the dog is right. And it's another principle I teach using a lead or other things as well, that pressure and relief principle. So it works right through. Um yeah, look, um, we've got we were we were always pretty good at handling livestock. I mean, our guys were running in in the olden days. We were working big mobs of sheep over huge distances and and travelling great great kilometres. So I don't think we were ever poor stock handlers in Australia. And I think some of those methods have have transferred through. And we're seeing stockmen from Australia travel all over the world and teach those methods. I know that um, Bud Williams was one of the pioneers from the United States in bringing that information here, but our guys had a lot to contribute too. So I don't think we're really bad at stock handling. I think we're really good at stock handling, and I think we do have a message that we can spread to the world for sure. Definitely. And so on to dogs now, what type of style of dog do you prefer? So my original dogs that I originally had had a lot of eye and um, and perhaps could have moved sheep as well as I might have liked. Um but I like the way they moved. They were pretty to watch. And I'm a bit of a dog perv, so I like to see a dog doing what a sheepdog should do, I guess. Um, but I, I, and, and I also, and my dogs go back to those lines still, so they still retain a fair bit of eye and a fair bit of style. My original reason for having dogs was because I had sheep. Now I have sheep because I've got dogs. And it's a little different, uh, a little different in that I want dogs with a, a really good uh, compliancy, dogs that are easy to train i'm a bit of a lazy trainer so i want dogs that move around their livestock well good shape find the point of balance get to the head and uh, hopefully work with me and uh, that's really what i like look for in a dog and i've been pretty lucky i've had some really nice dogs over the time and um, dogs that have taught me a lot um, but i'm also lucky in that i get to train a lot of other people's dogs so whilst i might not take them home with me per se uh, I do get to experience uh, difficult dogs, um, hard dogs, soft dogs, all sorts of dogs, and that that develops you you as a trainer in in a rapid way. It's a steep learning curve. Yeah, that <laughs> all too well, mate. And um, you've you've got a split pack there, mate, between your kelpies and collies. Do you want to tell us a bit about your current team? So uh, my original team was was uh, kelpies. I've always had a collie in the team, um, and I, I always. I, Obviously, there's a difference between Kelpies and Collies. Kelpies are uh, saying what for and Kelpies are saying, sorry, Kelpies are saying what for and Collies are saying what next. Um, so it's it's a little bit uh, temperament uh, focused. I like like dogs that are going to work with me. I originally got Kelpies um, and, and that's what got me over to the United States in the early days was because a lady came from America and uh, met me at a sheepdog trial. And I gave her one of my dogs to have a little go with in the trial. I was judging the encourage, I think. And she had a little run through. And um, and she just came out of there beaming and went back to America talking about Simon Leaning and how good his dog was and what a great guy he was. So I, I guess sometimes you just got to be nice to people and it pays off. And as a result of that, I, I got invited over to the States and and uh, did my first clinic over there. And, um, and it snowballed from that point on. But Kelby's got my got my foot in the door. People in in Europe and America, there's plenty of border collie handlers. Uh, there's it is the preferred dog. Uh, it's a niche market for Kelpies, 
And so that's why I always was had a have a Kelpie in my team. And and I'm really lucky that I've had some really good ones over the time and I still have some pretty good ones now. But I'm not stupid. I do like a border collie because they are much more compliant. They do a little bit better in sheep sheepdog trials because of that compliancy. And uh, they're a little bit easier to train in some ways. And so I've got a pretty good team of, of both. But it's utility dogs that I look for. I want dogs that can work in the yard, uh, they can work in the paddock, and uh, they can do the, the farm work for me as well. And, you know, they, they can work cattle and sheep and all the jobs they need to do. So they're not just trial dogs. They need to be able to do all the jobs as well. Yeah, definitely. We've got a um, streaker in the background there, mate. Yeah, it'll be my cat, will it? <laughs> yeah. Well, all of a sudden your head grew a tail. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was a little worried she might join in, and sure enough, she has. So. <laughs> You're right. So what are you looking for in your own line of dogs these days? Um, so I've got a couple of uh, different lines of dogs. I've got an... Um, uh, but they are utility dogs. They need to be able to do both jobs. I want them to work in the yards. I want them to back. I don't particularly want them to bark, uh, although they will speak on command if pressed. Um, I want a little bit of eye. I want a good point of balance. I want a natural shape around my sheep. I want my dogs to work around their sheep nicely in a good natural shape. And, uh, and I do like a dog coming forward. I don't like a dog dancing. I like a dog to move, to move sheep. Um, I'd much prefer a dog coming in than, than getting off. Uh, so I do like a dog that holds holds its position and has some strength in it as well. So, And then that compliance is really important. Dogs that, that work with you rather than fight you when you're asking it to do something, that's an important trait as well. Yeah. Absolutely. So, mate, we just had a question. Um, are you going to have to buy a new lounge with your cat going crazy and scratching it up in the background? But that's <laughs> okay. Um, but do you like a team of similar dogs or do you like to have a bit of something different in each, like a couple of different tools in the toolbox? Yeah, look, it's always good to have different tools in the toolbox. I, I won't have just, just solely yard dogs um, because I don't have the amount of work that perhaps uh, a big farm would have. Um, I won't just have a solely uh, sole yard dog and, and I've had them and, um, and I've trained them up and sold them for good money because that's really not my cup of tea. Um, more, more, I want a dog that can, can, back off and, and lighten up, but also can move a mob of sheep as well when I need to. So there are similarities. Um, of course, they're not, they're not all the same, and, and there'll be dogs dogs you'll go and get when you when the tough job's got to be done, and there'll be dogs you'll get when there's some crazy three sheep over the fence that you need to get in as well. But, yeah, they're probably similar in type. Um, they're a type that I like, and, uh, and those qualities <laughs> are really important. COVID. Um, yeah. Who were the most um, influential dogs to get you to where you are today? Uh, well, my first dog was pretty influential. That was Gypsy. At at, um, at three months old, she went around that up all my sheep that nobody else could get in for me, and she brought them all to the fence. And I thought I was I thought I got myself a miracle. Um, but she went back to dogs like Baron Bogey Mac and Capri Watch and those sort of very good sheep dogs. So I guess she was bred on pretty good lines. And the guys behind that bred that dog had done the research and looked for quality dogs to bring them across here in Western Australia. So I was probably benefiting from those guys. Later on, I um, I always look for dogs that are practical dogs uh, that are capable of doing most jobs. And so I had a very good border collie called uh, Boily Barney, Tony Boyle's breeding. 
Uh, Tony was um, is down here in Warpole, and his dogs are all over Australia, I think. And uh, he had an outstanding dog called Spotty, who won her first sheepdog trial at 12 months and her last sheepdog trial at 12 years. So she was pretty amazing. Yeah. And uh, Barney was related to to Spotty um, a couple uh, in a couple of ways. So she was a, it was a mother. I think it was a mother son mating was her mother was his mother. So. Um, it was inbred to that spotty line and uh, he turned out to be an outstanding utility dog and went across over east. We travelled over east with him. Uh, he won uh, utility trials over there that, um, and uh, he pushed the, at the time, the top Kelpie, I think it was Kevin Howell's digger. Uh, he Digger knocked him into second place in the National Kelpie trial when they allowed Border Collies to run. Like they called it the Australasian, I guess. So he was an outstanding dog. And uh, again, behind that was some fantastic breeding by really good people who, who, who did the research. And I think there's no point in reinventing the wheel when guys are producing really good utility dogs. I think they're the guys we should go and see and talk to. Definitely. Good point, mate. And is there a dog that somebody else has owned that you would have loved to inherit? Oh, look, there always is, isn't there? When you're watching from a, from the from a distance, um, uh, I heard great things about uh, Lascana Pace, and and I managed to get a grandson of Lascana Pace as a Kelpie uh, over here, and that was a magnificent moving dog. Uh, his name was Paleface Adios, one of Shoe, uh, one of um, Neil McDonald's breeding. He was a he was a dog that I would have loved to have owned, and I was lucky enough to get some puppies from from that breeding um we got a couple of other guys over here who have had outstanding dogs that you just go wow wouldn't that be cool to have but re the reality is i'm pretty happy with what, I, with what i've got and what i've managed to achieve with the team that i've had so they're better off they're probably they're probably a great team they're probably the reason they're great is because they're in the hands that they're in <laughs> that's it a lot of the time isn't it absolutely and do you believe there are many genuine all-round dogs about yeah, absolutely. I, I got a pile of them in my kennel here. Yeah. And, uh, we see them all the time. And over in Western Australia, perhaps it's a little bit different where um, the, the yard trialers and the three sheep trialers are really one. We don't have a separate um, type of, we have separate trials, but they don't separate each other. They cross over. So we're pretty lucky. A lot of our dogs that are working in the yards are also utility dogs. They've got a good cast. They can settle down on, on a little group outside and um and also come into the yards and fire up so they are pretty good versatile types of dogs and um yeah look there's plenty of those around as well and a bit earlier we spoke about heading ability but how important is that to you and why is it so important look i think if a dog doesn't head he doesn't control his livestock so he's got to go to that head and he's got to hold that sheep or cow stop it from going in the direction that it wants to go in and make it go in the direction that you want it to go in so the heading ability is really, really important. Um, it's It can be frustrating if the dog's always on the head. So we don't want a dog always on the head. We want a dog that goes there when it really needs to. And it's something that I really, I'm really uh, keen on. I've got a little dog at the moment that I'm playing with, uh, Marionvale Die, and she doesn't move one millimetre further than she needs to to control that, lead, that, that point of balance and right on the nose of the sheep or the cow. And it's delightful. It's delightful because you know that she's got it. There's no fear of it running away or losing it. She's got control of that that sheep or cow. And um, so I really do believe heading ability is is extremely important. 
Um, dogs that read their flight zones are very important. Dogs that move around there like sheep are very important. So there's lots of qualities that we should have, but heading ability is yeah, right on the top of the list. Absolutely. So has the type of dog you looked for changed since you first started? Look, it all changes because you evolve and you get better. And, you know, I, I got I got a little bit better over the years. I hope I have. And, we are very uh, often, we do, don't we? Yeah, I hope we do. Um, so, so of course, you can get by with dogs um, that are maybe not as good as perhaps that they were naturally. Gypsy, my first dog, was magnificent. She could cast the boundary of a, of a trial ground. She could, she could cast the boundary of a paddock. She could gather and, and bring sheep in. But she had a really lot of eye, and, and I didn't know how really to get her to move when she got sticky, and I didn't know how to get her off the head when she was hanging onto the head. And many times we'd get stuck up because I didn't know what to do. But I would still have dogs of that type uh, because now I'm able to free them up. I've got the skills to be able to get them moving. I've got the skills to be able to communicate through that strong eye. So, um, yeah, I, I don't really think um, the dogs that I've chosen are all that much different, different to the ones I had originally. Um, but maybe I'm a little bit better at getting them to do what I need them to do. <laughs> that's it um question here from bob helgram um in the usa people seem to go for border collies can you talk through some of the differences and similarities of kelpies and border collies so the border collies in america are predominantly from the european uh, border collies our border collies here in, here in australia are, are quite different once again that heading ability that natural feel for their livestock the border collies here in australia are probably working a little bit more like Kelpies, but maybe with a little bit more compliancy. The American Border Collies, um, they like a straighter dog, the dog that comes in and moves livestock straight lines because their, their trials are more straight line trials. And they like a little bit of teeth. Um, they like their livestock to be bitten, especially cattle, but they don't mind a sheep getting a bite either. They like a little bit of teeth. Uh, Kelpies, the Kelpies don't do well in the trials, in the big trials in the U US or in the UK or in Europe because of that compliancy. They want to go to the head a lot of the time um, because they want to control the livestock. They don't want to drop in behind sheep and drive them away. So there is quite a difference in the style of work that, between the Border Collies and Kelpies. But the main difference is that compliancy, the willingness to comply. Kelpies really like to do their own thing and border collies are pretty happy to be told what to do and that's a generalization because there's individuals in all types of dogs but that, that's the main difference is that compliancy that willingness to work to work with you and um and that's one of the things that i guess tony parsons when he wrote his book on kelpies he was he was lamenting um about that temperament the temperament of the kelpie the compliancy of the telp the kelpie um they can do the work they can do the work they can do the work no problems at all and they can do it fantastically well but when you want them to do what you want them to do that becomes sometimes a little bit of an issue but i think seeing some of the young guys that are running around with kelpies now certainly at the national kelpie trial and others that's changing we're seeing some really good dogs with with a better temperament and much much easier to handle so I think they are becoming a little bit closer. But the main difference is, yeah, that straightness uh, of the Border Collie in America um, and, uh, and 
the training, the trainability of the Border Collie in America. And some of them are trained to a very, very high degree where perhaps they're not really sheepdogs anymore. They're more like robots. Um, and I was fortunate enough to see the World Championships when I was over in Holland a few years ago and um, watched the Border Collies work there. And the really good dogs, the really, really, really good dogs, the top dogs still have natural ability, but also have a compliancy to them where they listen to their to their driver so i still think we want natural dogs and then maybe we want a little bit of a change in the temperament to get our dogs to listen to what we want them to do so how important is trainability and that bit ability and temperament to you um it's really important for me because i, I obviously working in sheepdog trials i want dogs that do as they're told um and and i think i think farmers and and stockmen generally when they're yelling stop, it would be really nice if the dog did stop. <laughs> and I know in the UK particularly, uh, it's paramount. You know, they're working on absolutely difficult terrain. And if the dog doesn't stop when he's told to stop, they can lose sheep off cliffs and other things. So now I, th I guess that's where the, where the Border Collie evol evolved from, that was that British uh, Border Collie that was trained to a high level and, and needed to listen. Uh, whereas here in Australia, we wanted dogs that we could drop on a mob of sheep and, and get on with it, and uh, we could do other things while they handled them. So I guess, you know, they evolved differently, and um, they became two different styles of dogs, and they suited different terrains and different different circumstances. But compliancy, yeah, look, if a dog's been told what to do, I like it to, to try and do it. Uh, I, I want it to override me if the sheep's, if I'm going to lose my sheep, um, but I want it to, to stop when I say stop. Yeah. Question here from Justin Malcolm. Um, yep. If you had to pick out a Kelpie or Collie, what would you go with? That's a really tough question, isn't it? Because they're so individual. Yeah. I'd probably stick with my Kelpies. You know, I'm a, I'm a little I'm a little bit um, of a Kelpie guy. I, I'd probably stick with my Kelpies. But I'd do my research really well. I'd find Kelpies that, that, that I liked and suited me. <laughs> That's Great it. answer, but I'm not biased <laughs> anyways. I, I love every dog. I've had a whole variety of different dogs here recently, and um, but I, I still love my Kelpies and my Collies. But yeah, yeah spot, soft spot for the Aussie dog. Yes. So another question here from Erica Vanderham: um, Is breeding as important as a good trainer? Yeah. Look, uh, I, I mean, I'm a lazy trainer, so. If a dog's not already doing a lot of the things that I want it to do before I start training it, um, which comes from breeding because she's inherited traits and comes from the mother and comes from the father and the grandfather and so forth, um, then I'm probably not going to put the time in on it uh, that I might do on a dog that's pretty natural and doing it pretty right. So, yes, for me personally, I, I think breeding is really, really important. You can train dogs. You can train dogs. And I have a little saying when we're working with dogs. Um when the shit hits the fan, they do what they do, and that's natural. And so when, when it gets a little bit tough and things go crazy, uh, dogs will do what's natural. And that if, if natural is running in and biting, then they'll do that. If natural is running away from the sheep, they'll do that. If natural is blocking, covering, and holding, they'll do that. And that's the dog that I want. And that's breeding. Yeah. 100%, mate. Absolutely. Um, on the East Coast, we've seen a lot of... Um, dog auctions uh, and increase in auctions over the last few years. 
I can't really comment for the West Coast. There is one um, coming up soon in WA. Well, there you go. Mate, what's your takeover? The auctions, do you think it's a good thing for the working dog breeds, a bad thing? Um, give us your point of view. Well, you know, I mean, it's 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 a great thing for the dogs, isn't it? Once there's a value in those animals, um, people will treasure them and look after them and take care of them, and and people will start breeding breeding quality dogs. We've got a little bit of a problem over here in the West, and I know you guys over there uh, in some of the other states do with the new breeding legislation. It becomes more and more difficult for us to produce dogs because of uh, puppy farm legislation and other things, but. Um, I think that if there's a value in the dog, then there's um, value in producing them. Yep. And if we're, we're smart about it and we look after our uh, fantastic Australian Kelpies and, and, and working border collies, we can produce um, we can we can produce really good dogs and, and get a, get paid for doing so, which is fantastic. We're having our first auction here over here in the West uh, in, a, in a couple of months' time. I, I don't know what the result will be. Um, it'll be interesting to see if the if the if the stockmen are willing to put their hands in their pockets to get quality dogs. They should, um, but we'll find that out, I guess, when when we come over there over over east. It seems to be not a problem. It seems to be a normal thing, and uh, people are willing to pay for for dogs that can save them really thousands of dollars. So yeah, I think it's a great thing. Definitely. So you were talking before about that magic store. Um, Mark Mengold's asks, do you have a secret method? And if it's not so, if it's not so, if if it's not a secret, <laughs> what do you do to your dogs to get that stop? So, I mean, my, my first point about uh, my first uh, method in getting a dog to stop is to to allow it to stop to find to to allow it to find that point of balance where it feels it's got control of the sheep, and then I'll ask it to stop. And uh, I, so, particularly with kelpies, I'll work with them if they offer a stop. I'll, I'll, I'll name it and I'll start in that process. And I know my cat's joined in again. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll work with the dog. So I'll ask the dog, I'll get the dog to find that point of balance, maybe on a fence or in a corner, somewhere where it, where it naturally feels it's got control and stop it. Uh, some dogs don't naturally stop, so you've got to get some body pressure on them. Chest is really powerful. Hips and shoulders are really powerful. Eyes are really powerful. And I like to use a rake. It just accentuates that... Um, that uh, hand action. Uh, and so I'll block the dog until it pulls up and stops and looks at me and says, what are you doing? But if it pauses in its action, I'll start to name that stop. Yep. Uh, and then we advance from there and start to start. We don't enforce it until the dog knows the word. Once the dog knows the word and acknowledges the word, then you've got a right to enforce it because you've taught it well. And um, we move on from there. Smashed it, mate. And we talked about your your current team there, mate. And are you breeding many pups? Look, I I, I I never breed a lot of pups. I tend to produce pups to replace the ones that I I want. Um, I just had young die in pup, so that's exciting. And uh, she's one of my budding superstars. She's been really successful in a really short amount of time. So I do have a litter coming from her. Um, but really, no, I don't breed a lot of pups. I breed a litter when I need one. And, uh, of course, you can't keep them all. So there's often a pup available. But um, I try to just keep my team at a, at a limited number that's manageable. And um, and I also don't – I'm not adverse to going outside to look at other dogs as well from other breeders or studs because I think you can get very narrow if you, if you just 
look look at your own dogs always. Definitely. And when you're looking at those outside dogs and size, are you only looking at work traits or common blood to what is already in your line as well? Yeah, look, I, I do like to have common blood. Uh, I don't like to go completely outside. But having said that, I've done that also. But um, I, I do like to have common blood with dogs that I, that I like in the background, if I can. But some of the dogs that, that are in the background, of particularly Kelpies, are living on legend and not on fact. So it's hard to know what they really were like. Um, so dogs close up um, that I've seen are probably more have, of an influence to me than dogs that are too far back in the lines. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I, I do like to have dogs uh, that are at some, at some point related uh, so that we're not really going totally outside of the lines. Absolutely, mate. And in your eyes, what makes a good sire? Well, first thing you've got to be able to mate a bitch. That's always a good start. <laughs> um, but really, yeah, look, I mean, I guess if he throws what he what he, what he he is or better than he is, he's a great sire, yeah. isn't he? Um, if he produces what he is or better than he is, uh, that's a good that's a good thing. And um, so, yeah, I mean, and you can, you can see that if you go around looking at pups he's produced previously. You can see that. And uh, there's a number of dogs over here that have produced litter after litter of quality dogs with different bitches and and that's that's the sign of a really good sire. absolutely um and what are you looking for when considering those joinings once again you know those same qualities i want a dog that's working well one of the things we we see when we're looking at dogs is a trained dog and it's pretty hard to to yes. really get the real dog from that so Doesn't um I do like to see dogs naturally. Uh, I do like to see young dogs uh, doing what they do without too much interference. If I'm looking at a dog, I like people to shut up and let me see the dog, not tell the dog what to do so we can see what it will do naturally. And, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, heading ability, balance, uh, shape around its sheep, and that nice nature compliance. These are always, once again, another good, important trait. That's it. And, mate, everyone always talks about the sire. Mate, do you have a criteria that a bitch needs to meet to be able to breed from her? It's the same criteria. I mean, I want a bitch that does the same as, as what a sire would do. Uh, she, obviously, she's she's going to carry the pups. She's going to have a fair influence over what she produces, how she raises them. All of those things are going to have an impact on a litter of pups. So I do want the bitch to be um, sound. I do want the bitch to be working correctly. Um, I have done breedings on just pedigree and with some success. Uh, the bitch themselves were not top of the top of the list, but they carried the genes that I wanted uh, and I've produced dogs as a result of that. But generally, best to best is hopefully going to produce the best. Definitely. Um, and what's your opinion of influencer sire compared to a dam has over a litter? Look, I don't really know. Um, I, I guess um, I tend to tend to ha carry bitches if I can, but but sometimes they've had a whole team of males as well. So I don't really know who's the most influential. I guess anecdotally, um, there's people have different opinions. Uh, the genes come from either side. Um, it's a 50-50 split. Perhaps the bitch has more influence in the raising of the pups and influence in relation to their their behaviour. So maybe the bitch can influence a litter a little bit more because the guy's only just there for a donation after all. But <laughs> we do, we do, uh, we do like, I think the genes come from both, so it's good to 
I think it's good to have a good assessment on both dogs. I love the honesty you answered at least at the beginning. I have no idea. And it went into it yeah. deeper. I, I, really love, I love that. No, that's awesome. That, because, you know, you, you thought about it and then went deeper into it. And off the back of what you just mentioned there about the bitch carrying the pups, do you find that a bitch, once they meet a certain maturity age, um, a, a better mothers and you get better pups as a result? Oh, looking, I mean, dogs are individuals, aren't they? So some do, some don't. Um, I wouldn't say that that would be a hard and fast rule. Uh, people people put their bitches in pup to settle them and it doesn't work. People put their bitches in pup to settle them and it does work. So, yeah, look, I think uh, every dog's an individual. Uh, my really good bitch, uh, Floss, that won me a lot of trials and did a great, great service for me over the years, um, was an amazing um, mother and raised really good litters. And then she wasn't anymore and she didn't want them anymore. She didn't like them anymore. So, you know, they're all different, I guess. And I think you mentioned before that you uh, prefer to keep bitches rather than dogs. Is there a reason for that? Oh, it allows me to retain the retain the line and the, the pups. Um, but bitches are called bitches for a very good reason, aren't they? And they can be a little bit tricky, can be a little bit tricky at times. Yeah. Uh, but the good bitches, I find the good bitches are are really good. And uh, Floss yeah. was a really sound bitch, and my little die that I got at the moment is a really sound bitch. They cope with the they cope with the training very well, and uh, they don't pee on everything too. Although I, although I've got boys that do that as well, so yeah. that's a nuisance part of it as well. But absolutely. And how do you go about picking a pup for yourself? Sometimes I just keep the one that's left and hope for the best. I mean, I've done the breeding, I've done the research, I'm hoping it for the best. I don't tend to pick a runt. Um, I like a dog to look me in the eye and I like a, a, a pup to, to be calm and sensible. Um, I like a pup to want to be with me. I like a pup to come towards me and want to be with me. But if the breeding is right and, uh, and you like the look of the pup, then that's the best you can do, I think, um, because everything everything's up to you from that point on if the if the genetics are there and you you're going to have a good handle on it we'll see you'll see how it goes not all of them will work out but hopefully with the right research and the right breeding and the right handling it, that's that's the way you pick the best pub right and you've touched on research um a few times tonight what advice would you give to someone wanting to purchase their first dog go and see the mother and father working the livestock that you've got for it to work so if you if you've got a wanted a sheep dog and you've only got sheep, don't go and buy a cattle dog. Don't go and see a dog that's working cattle and say, "Wow, that'll work well on sheep." Go and see a dog doing the job you want it to do. If you wanted a yard dog and you needed a yard dog, go and see mother and father working in the yards and see if that's what you like in the dogs, because that's what you're going to get, and uh, that's where the genetics come from. That's what's going to be produced. And if it's not going to suit, if the mother and father aren't going to suit you, don't even look at the pups because pups have got a really good way of grabbing you when you're walking through <laughs> it's those eyes. Yes. And so you'll end up coming home with a pup that you would probably, <laughs> probably is not going to see your circumstances. So see mum, see dad first, working on the livestock you want them to work. And if the if the breeder's not going to allow allow you to do that, go somewhere else. Go go to somebody else because the good breeders will always be willing to, you, to show you the dogs doing what they can do. They'll be proud to. Um, and um, and that that would be my advice for people looking for a pup. Good advice. Another question here from Daniel M. Um, 
You touched on a straight walk-in. Do you believe straight walk-in is related to strength in a dog? And do you think dogs have enough straight walk-in? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, it's impressive, isn't it, seeing a dog? i got a little video on my Facebook page of my dog, uh, Chip, walking in on a sheep, and it's impressive. And, and I got a lot of likes, and I became an influencer almost because of result, which was fantastic. Um, but some livestock don't like a dog walking straight at them. They like a dog rolling them and turning their heads and, and allowing them some relief and to walk away from them. So uh, in the UK, they want a straight walk up. In America, they want a straight walk up. Some of the sheep they have there are pretty pretty tough sheep and they'll fight a dog. And if the dog's not willing to take them on and bite them on the nose and keep walking, it can be a problem. Um, so yeah, look, depends on your circumstances. Personally, I like a dog to walk up because I can always flank it if I don't want it to walk up. So yeah. personally, I like a dog to walk up. Um, I want a dog, dog to also back off if if it's putting too much pressure on the sheep as well. And I like a dog to read that situation and, and give itself a little natural reverse sometimes. But, yeah, I like a walk-up, and uh, it's a good question. Uh, I like I like a dog to walk in on its livestock. Beautiful. Um, another question here from Justin Malcolm. Um, how do you like to start a dog, and is the age you start a dog different between um, a Kelpie and a Collie? So I tend to look at my my I'm a, I'm I'm a bit of a a puppy perv. I like to drop him in on the sheep uh, reasonably early. Um, so you know, I mean, I'll start looking at them from eight weeks old. But really, it's only for my own interest. It's not really for any benefit to anybody. Uh, if a little pup gets bowled over at eight weeks old, it could be the end of it. So my advice to most people is wait until they're about sixteen or eighteen weeks, twenty weeks, or even older. Six months is good. Um, and, and really, the training can't start until they're at least eight months anyway because physically they can't get to the right place unless your sheep are really quiet. And if you start a pup that's too slow, he'll shortcut. He'll cut the corners and uh, and it quickly becomes a habit. So my advice is if you have a look at it, see what it's doing, see if it's showing interest when it's young, put it away, make it your friend, raise it well, feed it well, take it with you wherever you can. And then put it, bring it back when it's a little bit bigger, when it's physically able to cut cope with the livestock that it's working and uh, and bring it along that way. That would be my advice. That's some good advice, mate. And what kind of livestock do you like to start a pup on yourself? So, I mean, my sheep get worked a lot by different people and different dogs. So they're pretty quiet and pretty docile, but they got to move. And, and you can't have sheep that just stand still because it won't stimulate a pup's instinct if you haven't got some movement. So I tend to look at um, hoggets, uh, uh, sheep just out of lamb being lambs, uh, and uh, and I tend to go for weathers, um, but it doesn't really matter. Um, and I like sheep that are um, educated by older dogs if I can get them, and I, I've got older dogs, so I'm fortunate that I can. And I guess my advice to people who are starting pups for the first time, don't drop them on crazy merinos or crazy sheep. Go and see a sheepdog trainer, get some sheep that are a little bit quieter, uh, not bucket-reared sheep, not lambs that have been raised by bottles, uh, sheep that are real sheep that are handled well and uh, and start in a small area so the sheep, so the puppy's got a chance on a fence, in a corner, somewhere where the, where the puppy's got half a chance of, of getting control of his livestock. Um, and um, Greg Prince always said, a secret to a well, well-trained dog is well-trained sheep. A secret to well-trained sheep is a well-trained dog. So if you can get someone with a well-trained dog to come and educate your sheep uh, before you start your puppy, that would be a really big advantage. 
Definitely. Um, what do you have any milestones ex or expect uh, expectations on pups? Um, like what you're looking for and when? No, so I, I guess if a pup doesn't start, you can't assess them. So when I drop it on at 16 weeks and it does nothing, then I put it away. And, and that's fine because it's not ready. But if, it, if I drop it on at 16 weeks and it starts being really silly and doing stupid things, then it's, then it's a little X against its name because what it shows is what, it, what is in it. And I want dogs to start well if I can. So um, I want pups to show me what I call glimpses of brilliance. I don't expect it to be the perfect sheepdog, but I want it to try and get to the head. I want it to think about what it's doing when it starts. Uh, I don't want it chasing sheep. I want it trying to head sheep and controlling sheep. And if it shows me those things, then, I, then I'm pretty excited about it. I don't expect it in the first instance. And I think a, a wise old stockman said to me one time, six or seven times before you see what it really can do. And that's probably right. Um, and I might drop it in every two or three weeks for six or seven times and then see what it can do. Um, but I, but I, want them to, uh, I want them to start well. I want them to try and, try and manage, manage the sheep, control the sheep. Um, I don't want them just, uh, I don't mind, but I don't mind if they just don't want to do anything at all because they're not ready. And not having an age limit, mate, um, how long would you give a pup to show you something that has moments of brilliance or glimpses of brilliance, I think you said? Um, yeah, glimpses of brilliance. How would you encourage it to, um, to come along and build some desire in it? Yeah, just dropping it in, in periodically. Um, my very, very good uh, Kelpie that, that ran second, I think, in the National Kelpie Trial over in Western Australia, um, he, uh, he showed nothing until 12 months. And, in fact, he was out the door as far as I was concerned. And uh, it might have been Gordon Curtis over here, one of the good Kelpie guys, said to me, um, I wouldn't get rid of that pup yet just yet, Simon. I reckon he's got something about him. He would sit in a water trough like a crocodile and stare at the sheep. That's all you could see was his eyes. <laughs> and he was just, he was, but people loved him when I did demonstrations. People loved that. They thought he was amazing and funny. And the only reason he stayed was because people kept asking me, oh, well, how's Axel going? And at 12 months, uh, he, he did his first trial. And at about 14 months, he placed second in the national championship as a novice dog. So, yeah, 12 months was a good time to hang on to him for. Um, I had a dog from over east that I kept for three years and it never worked out, but I still kept, I kept seeing glimpses of good work, but not, not, not able to sustain that for any length of period. So I kept it for three years, um, but, it, but I ended up having to let it go because it didn't, didn't make it, but the breeding was there. And I thought at some point it's going to switch on to the, to, to reality. And, and unfortunately that one didn't So all different different circumstances, different dogs. And, you know, look, both of those dogs I really liked. So it wasn't a case of they annoyed me or made me, I needed to get rid of them. They were good dogs. They weren't barking in the camp. They weren't causing trouble. So I, I allowed them to stay and gave them time. So I told you it's the eyes, mate. <laughs> People looked in his eyes and he sucked him in. <laughs> yes. So what's your ideal training setup? And, um, do you start in a round yard, square yard, or like how do you start? So I, I, I do have a round pen and I do have a square pen and I do have a little bit, little paddocks as well. And I, and I have all of those things. Um, so I've got them all at my disposal. If you're starting a dog in a round pen, it, especially if you're beginning with sheep dogs, with quiet sheep, what a round pen can do for you is it, well, it doesn't have corners, so the sheep can't hide as easily. 
but it also gives you gives you a picture in your mind of what a what the dog's movement around the sheep looks like. So you can assess if the dog's cutting a corner, say, particularly with an inexperienced eye. I find the round pen is useful for that reason because you know when a dog's cutting a corner, you've got a fence to gauge it off. My preference now, as a more experienced handler, is to get out of those round pens pretty quickly, get into a bigger area where the dog can manage to get to the head, and um, and working in in areas where they can go into corners and go between fence and sheep and uh, and walk in straight lines with their with their livestock. Round pens tend to get circling if you're not careful. But I like all of those things. They're all useful. They have their uses. Touching a lot of points today that I, I think of. So I'm, uh, I'm liking that. I'm actually double-checking a few things I've been doing of late as well. So, <laughs> mate, and, mate, um, a big one here, mate. Do you prefer um, to work your dog in a race or alongside of a race and why? Oh, so we need our dogs to go inside the race because um, that's what trialing is requiring. Yep. So um, when I'm working when I'm working for training, I'm putting them in the race and they're backing and they're going back through. It's a terrific way of strengthening up a dog and, and getting a dog's confidence up. And backing really helps a dog get confident. Uh, and coming back through, it's a, it's a brave dog to go down on the, on the ground and get run past sheep like that. But if I was working thousands of sheep for hours and hours, I'd take care of my dogs and I'd work the outside of the race probably more often. Because you got to take care of them, they get bashed around in there, and um, endless backing and endless running through the through sheep shortens their life. So, yeah, look, both both have their value and both have their use. Personally, I want my dog in the race because that's what we're training them to do. And how do you go about putting sides in your dogs? So I, I have a different. I have a process of um, once the shape is right, and I won't put a command on the dog until the shape is right. So I want my dogs moving around the sheep. Well, as you know, dogs will have a good side and a bad side, and I'll get that good side uh, right, and I'll work on that bad side, something like something like five to one, to make sure that that movement around the sheep is correct. And then I'll start to whistle while the dog does it. So it just start, it's almost singing along with the dog as the dog's moving in that direction. I'm I'm making the noise or whistling the noise, and then as it changes direction, I'll whistle the other noise, and I do that. For a number of reasons one is because it just the dog associates the noise with the movement but the biggest problem with beginner handlers when we're starting out in sheepdog sheepdog training is we get our left and rights mixed up so by singing it or by whistling it or by just making the noise um we fix it in our own head first which is the important thing you got to remember your left from your right and it's not I easy to do directions these days my left yes. and right's the opposite. So yes. I'm telling them to go left and they're meant to be turning right. But yes. <laughs> So it's an easy mistake to make. And so whistle. what I call whistle while you work is just a way of, of fixing it in your own head as a handler, making sure that the dog's uh, doing what you want it to do without enforcing it. Uh, once, once the whistle while the work started, then I try to put the whistle on closest to the first movement so the dog's first movement i'll name it at the very at the closest to the first movement and of course with experience you get that pretty close to their first movement because that's what we do isn't it we we, we, have, we have experience and we can see it we see what the dog's about to offer so we name it um if you're a beginner and you don't quite see that wait for the dog to make a move name it and then closer you get to the first movement the quicker it will become a command once the dog's showing an in inclination to to take those instructions, uh, then I'll enforce it by saying uh, by correcting it if it's wrong. 
it's really easy to get a dog to respond to the corrections rather than it is to respond to the to the commands. So you've got to be careful with those corrections before you are bringing them in too early because you'll quickly get a dog guessing. It's a 50-50 after all. It's like a, uh, a coin toss, isn't it, really, whether yeah. they get it right or wrong. So if we start correcting them, they'll wait for the correction. Um, we want them to listen to the command because uh, particularly in the sheepdog trial, again, uh, that, that first movement, if they're going the wrong way, those sheep aren't going through that obstacle. Mate, I've, over the last um, few months, I've been doing a lot of um, work at home and one-on-one, and let's call them city slickers, coming out with their herding dogs to see what they have. Yep. And um, based on what you said there, on the scale of 1 to 10, um, how much amusement do you still get of people getting confused with their actual lefts and rights when they walk into a round yard? Um, when you warn them that they're going to actually forget their lefts and rights and they don't know what you're talking about, and all of a sudden they don't know which way they're walking anymore. Oh, look, I get a lot of amusement out of training people, and, and if I didn't, I wouldn't be doing it. Uh, I, I do enjoy it. I do enjoy the banter, and I do enjoy uh, and I do enjoy taking making fun of the ladies because left and right can be a little bit difficult in the car sometimes for the ladies as well, but uh, we, won't, we won't mention that in public, will we? But... Um, <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it's 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 always amusing, and it's nice. Uh, it's it's nice for city slickers to come up with their dogs and and put their their kelpies and border collies in with the sheep for the first time. And it's amazing to watch those dogs realise what they were put on this earth to do. And it's so exciting to see the, those guys grab their camera and video it and be proud of their dogs as well. Because there's a lot of benefits as well from whilst we laugh and joke about it, there's still a lot of benefits from that for those people in training and getting some mental stimulation for their city kelpies, isn't there? Absolutely. And one thing that surprises a lot of people, and um, I suppose a lot of people actually laugh about it, there's actually some hidden talent in some of those dogs that they come in and just like, wow, I was not expecting that. Absolutely. I'm shocked often at the standard of some of the city dogs. And uh, I'm also horrified at the standard too sometimes as well, I must say. But I'm shocked at some of the standards. And some of them are outstanding little dogs and would be great on, on properties. But, you know, they don't always have to be on properties. Uh, there's a misnomer there that Kelpies need to be on on big properties running endlessly. They don't. They just need mental stimulation. They need routine. Uh, they need training and they need an opportunity to develop. And they can do that in the city just as easily as they can in the country. Because we've got to remember, a lot of farm dogs spend a lot of time on the chain, um, whereas city dogs don't. They're, they're, they're stimulated in other ways. So there's no real right way to raise a Kelpie. But, of course letting them see sheep and letting them to work livestock, that's what they were put on this earth to do. So I think if they get an, op get an opportunity to do that, people should take it. Well said, mate. Um, mate, is there a kind of, is there a casting action that you prefer? Casting? Um, yeah, look, I mean, I, I like a natural dog, natural casting dog, and you do see a lot of Kelpies particularly pull up early. They'll start to catch an eye of a, of a sheep as they're out, out running, and uh, that can be problematic. Uh, the border collies in the states and the and the UK, the magnificent outruns, and it's one of the one of the real um, beautiful things to watch when you're working when you're seeing those outruns. But they're trained. A lot of them are trained to run fence lines and other things. Uh, they go huge distances, but they're running for fences. So my preference is a dog that breaks out periodically, sees the sheep and breaks out, feels the flight zone and breaks out. But again, that's that natural dog, and that's what I'm hoping to and looking for. Uh, and I've had natural dogs that run fence lines too, so they'll just go to the fence line and go looking for their sheep. Um, but a, a fence line runner can miss sheep too, so if there's a big paddock. 
So, um, yeah, look, my preference is a natural dog that sees its sheep and breaks out on, on, a, on an outrun and, and finishes, finishes around the back of the sheep, not pulls up early and starts working them. I want them to go around and finish uh, on that point of balance and start bringing the sheep towards me. So you mentioned over in WA um, a lot of your trials are together but separate. Do you have a favourite type my of preference, My preference is a utility trial. I like a dog. Uh, I like the challenge of a utility trial. So our utility trials run for 15 minutes and we've got to do uh, a cast, draw, pen, go into the yards, work through, a, a gather, a force. We've got to put them up a raceway. We've got to do a draft and then we've got to put them away. Then we've got to come out, pick up those five sheep and work them through three obstacles, similar to a three sheep trial, but we've got 15 minutes to do it, to do it all in. And there's a fair bit of human in that too because you can mess it up yourself pretty easily as well. So I do like that challenge and I think a dog that can come into the yard, push a group of pretty heavy old sheep through a through a series of obstacles and then go out and settle right down and work like a three sheep dog, I think that's the dog for me. Mate, and, and why do you trial? Well, I mean, it's just a passion and it's and it's an interest and it's a challenge and I, and I really love it. It's... Uh, Look, there's there's lots of reasons, but it's a good test for me and my dog. I'm not competing against anybody except for myself. Uh, I like my dogs to do what they can do at home, and if they go to the trial and do what they can do at home, then hopefully they're competitive. And do you believe the trials simulate real work scenarios? Um, it's difficult, isn't it? We, we can't really simulate real work scenarios because of the numbers of sheep. Sheep are difficult to get. If you want to uh, test a dog on a flock of sheep, um, you know, who's going to bring, lend you hundreds of sheep to for each dog to have a different mob each time? Um, but I think they do a pretty good job of, of replicating. And I noticed some of the other guys are, are bringing in new trials, uh, stock dog type trials and challenging dogs across fields. So we've got sheep and cattle trials. So I think the intention uh, is to test the dog in all sorts of areas and um, we do the best we can. Three sheep trials perhaps um, don't always test a dog's, um, maybe a, a real working dog's uh, work. But having said that, um, when the sheep are wild, you need a natural dog. Uh, it doesn't matter how much control you got. If it's sheep are wild, you need a natural dog to control them. So I, so I think overall they're a pretty good test and we've done a pretty good job in, in maintaining the workability of sheep dogs through trial dogs. Uh, agree, mate. And if you could make a um, a change to trialing format at all, what would that be? Uh, I'd win a bit more. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, you know, I, I, we're really good over here. We got if you stood if you sat on the boundary on one of our trials in Western Australia uh, with some idea of the rules, you could come up with a pretty close to the score of the judge because we've got a pretty good level uh, playing field. We've got good quality people and we've got um, a good test for our dogs. So I wouldn't change too much. I think um, I think it's been tried tried over a long period of time. It's great to see changes in trials. And I think the National Kelpie trial has been good in, in innovation, offering new different types of trials, and that's fantastic. And uh, and I know the stock dog guys, they, they're, they're working on some, some new different types of trials as well to, to test dogs. But you're seeing the same guys cross over in all the fields and, and do well in all of them because a test is a test and control is control and quality dogs are quality dogs. 
Definitely. And do you have a favourite trial to participate in or one you'd like to? I like the utility trials. I, I like the utility trials that we run over here. I like the utility trials that I attended to over in the east. Uh, I like the National Kelpie trial. That's always a good trial. Um, yeah, so they're the ones that I prefer. But uh, to get the trialling over here in the west, we've got to go along to the three sheep trials, and I enjoy them as well. And you mentioned that coming second in a, in a field trial before, mate. What do you feel is your best um, trialling achievement thus far? Well, actually, that trial came first and second. That oh, was just Axel came second. Uh, yeah, that was the National Kelpie trial in the novice. That was a novice level. Um, I went I went across over to over east the following year, and I had three dogs in the final of the National Kelpie trial, and there was five dog final. So I did okay then. Um, ran a, won a couple of open championships. So I've been pretty lucky and pretty fortunate. I won some trials over in the states, and I judged a few trials over in UK as well. Sorry, in Europe, I should say. So I've had some amazing experiences through dogs. Dogs have taken me to many, many places and and allowed me to meet millions, many, many different people and uh, huge, huge experiences. Uh, I mean, I was in the mountains in in, um, in, in America um, working, working 2,000 sheep in the mountains with a group of people who have never really worked sheep before. What an experience. And dogs have been fantastic for me to be able to have those experiences. Um, my biggest achievement is, is being able to pass that on to other people. I got 10 people uh, at the last ship I've tried, 10 of the people that were participating had come through my program here and uh, we're doing really, really well. And there was probably only 30 or so participants in the trial. So a third of them had come through Marionvale, which was a great achievement as well. Passing that knowledge on has been fantastic. So many, many great uh, achievements and that I'm very proud of. Awesome, mate. And do you want to get it up? Well, this one over here. And in your travels trialling through, throughout Australia, is there something that you see handlers struggle with um, and, or where do you believe they could improve? Oh, look, you know, um, I mean, the, the great guys, Mick Hudson's probably the best trialer at the moment in the three-sheep world. You know, get along to go and see Mick Hudson and see what he does and see how you can, you can advance. Um, we got some great young handlers at the moment, um, and I know you've had a couple of them on, couple of them on, on your dog talk that are working kelpies and doing it at a great, great um, level. I think what's what's great about the trialling scene here in Australia at the moment, and probably worldwide, is there's lots of people offering advice and and uh, and help. Um, if you're short in some area, you know there's plenty of people to go out and help and give you some hands. Um, sometimes we struggle with over control. Sometimes we struggle reading our livestock. Perhaps that's the biggest transition in sheepdog trialling is understanding livestock, learning how to read your livestock before you send your dog anywhere. Um, and it comes with experience and it comes with opportunity to work and it comes with getting off getting off your bum and going and doing as much as you can to learn as much as you can and speaking to people that know. Um, and we're really lucky in Australia because we've got some great people that know a lot. Definitely. Uh, another question here from Erica. Would you breed with semen from a foreign country or do you always use dogs from Australia? Oh, I personally haven't. Um, yeah, I would if I could get it and I could afford it. But, uh, yeah, look, um, personally I haven't done that. I wouldn't say don't do it. If It's the same criteria. Have a look at the dog. If you like the dog and you know the dog's uh, capable of producing decent pups, go for it because bringing in outside lines is only going to benefit the gene pool here. 
Uh, we're limited. We're a small country. We don't have a huge amount of dogs. And Kelpies uh, could be in a little bit of trouble if we don't uh, aren't aware of what's around. And, and I know some dogs that got sent to America in the early days are lines of dogs that don't exist any, anymore here in Australia. So I think that could be a useful thing for Kelpies. And I know the Border Collies over there in the UK are, whilst they're quite different in their work, they do add a lot to our, our Border Collies here and the first cross, cross and second crosses down the generations have been really successful. Wow, that's right, Wayne. But just touching on that, um, you mentioned earlier about dogs have been passed for a while, you know, get better. As, as The longer they're dead, the, the better they get in some cases. Mate, do you have an opinion on AI uh, and using dogs that have been dead for some time compared to using the best sire you can find today from live cover? Um, I used uh, a, a Kelpie that was... Um, that had long passed and produced a pup and bought the pup for a fair bit of money and brought it over and and probably normally it, it didn't it didn't earn as dog food i can tell you that much um but what it did produce later down the track was some quality dogs yeah. so yeah i i don't have a, a problem with using a, a dog semen that's from a dog long gone if if um it's it's a it was a good dog of the type that i like but my preference is to see the dog doing what it's doing on sheep that I or livestock that I'm working, and uh, yeah, I still use the criteria that I would always use. But sometimes it, it, it's good to go back to those old lines to keep those old lines and try and reproduce those old lines. But as I said, yeah, sometimes memories are different, um, and maybe the sheepdog trialings were different, maybe the livestock were different, and maybe they weren't as good as what we said they were. Um, so I do like first-hand experience, and that only gives you a couple of generations, doesn't it? Because those ones beyond that, people don't remember or weren't around, aren't around anymore. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one last question here from Mark Mangold. Apart from yourself, who is the most influential school trainers, in your opinion? So I can only tell you the people that I've worked with. I don't really haven't seen everybody. Greg Prince was phenomenal. Uh, he's like he's only he's passed away a few years ago. My first Greg Prince school I went to, um, I was told to go, you need to go, you need to go. And I went along hoping it would be the best thing ever. And I became a groupie. I sort of followed him around. <laughs> <laughs> it was just phenomenal. What he could do with a dog was just phenomenal. And uh, and I stopped listening to him after about the third school and started watching him intently, what he did with his body, how he moved his positions, what he did with the livestock and how he did that. And, and that's when I really learned what, what I thought he was offering. He was amazing. Neil McDonald, the first school I went to with Neil McDonald, um, I, I had no clue what he was on about. It made no sense to me. I wasn't at the level that I could utilise the information that he was offering. He was really funny and really entertaining and I loved his stories. And as a result of that, when I do my clinics, I, I, I tell stories too because I just thought it was a really great way to engage with the participants and to use anecdotes that had a message. The second time I went to Neil McDonald made a lot more sense. So after Greg Prince, Neil McDonald made, made a lot more sense. And, and I would recommend people go and see him because he's really been, he's been a pioneer for, for many years traveling Australia teaching. Um, I went to some people I would recommend not go to as well. And I, I won't mention their names, but you know, there, was, there was guys here that, um, I call him the polypipe man. He told me to belt my dog with a piece of polypipe for barking. And as I uh, and the lady that was was uh, meant to belt her dog, she turned around, the dog stopped barking, and he insisted she still go through with it. And I just said, 
I'll sort my dogs out from barking and got in the ute and drove home. So, you know, it was this, there's people that, um, that are not good, good trainers. I think um, there's guys around. Um, my, my advice, if you're concerned, is go and fence sit. Go and sit on a fence and listen. Go and sit on a fence and see. Uh, I always say to people when they're coming to my school, if you don't like what I'm doing, don't hand your dog to me because I'll train it. Uh, and um, your, your dog is your responsibility. So don't pass your dog to me if you're not comfortable with what I'm doing to it. Fortunately, I'm pretty nice and I don't do mean things, but some people do. And um, and you can ruin a dog really quickly if, if you hand it over to a trainer and his first protocol is to whack it on the head with something. So um, if you can, get a video of the guy working. If you can, go and see his Facebook page. Um, go and sit on a fence and watch what they do before you release your dog onto them because there's some really good trainers out there. Uh, and, and over east, you've got a myriad to pick from. I did work with Mick Hudson when he came over here, really impressed with how he handles his dogs. He's yep. a good guy to get some information off and he's been super successful. Neil McDonald, of course, Greg Pitt's passed, so we don't get to work with him anymore. But I'm sure there's some great people over east that would, would offer some good opinions and advice. Mick, uh, and you mentioned Mick there, mate. He's always been uh, get, always been able to give me as much time as I needed, mate. So there's another one I'd highly recommend. Yeah. He can't give me enough time um, and not always pay time either, mate. If I was in the area, Dan, drop in and let's muck around. Like, yeah, you know, they're great people. They are, mate. And you meet some fantastic people at those schools as well. Absolutely. Mate, was that come to that time of night? Um, mate, was there a question that stood out um, to you tonight um, to win a bag of Enduro Plus working dog food? Uh, I like they have to be in Australia. Oh, okay. The, the gentleman that asked about the walk-up strength, what was where was he from? Daniel, he's uh, he's a Victorian mate. That's as in Australia as far as I remember. Well, it's sort of Australian, sort of Australian, isn't it? We we sort of say it's Australia. <laughs> that is, mate. Well, Daniel, congratulations, mate. If you can get in contact with us, just send um, send us your details, and you got a bag of Enduro Plus. Um, Tiny G food for working dogs. We're real kangaroo, mate. Yeah, that's where I was going. Where'd you think I was going? <laughs> cool. Thank you, Enduro. And, and Simon, of course, um, Enduro are now also helping us uh, support you as well. So, yeah, you'll also get a bag of Enduro Plus. Oh, that's terrific. Thanks very much for that. Listen, guys, you're doing a great job and, and really appreciate it. And getting these guys from uh, Australia that are, are getting the acknowledgement and recognition for the work they're doing, there's, there's plenty of guys out there doing amazing things um, all over the place. And, and, and you guys are doing a fantastic job in putting them up to the forefront. So thank you for all the work you guys do. No, that, we enjoy it. So, yeah. Mate, is there someone that you would like us to have a sit down and have a chat with on Dog Talk? Wow, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, I guess um, looking through the list of people you've had on there, you know, it's, you've had a lot of my my um, inspirations and heroes. So it's hard for me to give you give you a thought. But if you leave it with me, I'll get back to you on that if you don't mind. Yeah, all good. Not a problem. So we'd like to thank all of our members and um, for tuning in tonight. And of course, you, Simon, for your time. Um, before you go, one last question. Would you f rather fight one duck the size of a horse or 20 horses the size of ducks? <laughs> What's this duck question? I don't know. <laughs> Just want to see how you think. Oh, right. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to fight, what did you say? One duck the size of a horse or 20 horses, horses the size of ducks? 
Yeah, I'm going to go with the horses the size of ducks, I think. And why is that? I think that'd be easier to flick away. <laughs> Answered very well, mate. And thank you once again. Thank you very much for your time tonight. Much appreciated. All the and best. Well, Thanks very much. Matt, thank you. And all our viewers out there, please remember we learn every day. And the day we uh, stop learning will be a sad one for all of us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Cheers.